0: Hi everyone, and welcome to the latest series of the Log on Mind podcast. In this opening episode, we spoke to internationally renowned addiction psychiatrist and neuroscientist, Dr. Judson Brewer, about his work, and new book, Unwinding Anxiety. If you enjoyed the episode, why not give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Hi Jud, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, thanks. Um... So to start with, we always ask about what your kind of personal and professional relationship to mental health looks like. <laughs> well, well,
1: my personal relationship is that I've certainly been a stressed out student okay. um, <laughs> back in the day. I had panic attacks during residency training, and my professional relationship is that you know I'm, a, I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I'm a neuroscientist. I uh, study how habits form and how we can use things like mindfulness to break free from them, ranging from smoking to overeating to even anxiety.
0: And what kind of, I suppose it might've been personal experience, but what kind of got you interested in addiction and anxiety as you were training? Cause you trained as a, as a medical doctor first, right?
1: Yes. So as a, I wasn't actually Thinking that I would become a psychiatrist in medical school, but they, uh, you know, I started meditating my first day of medical school. (laughs) And as I learned how my own mind worked through my MD, PhD program years, about eight years or so, I started becoming very interested in helping others understand their own minds. And that led me into specializing in psychiatry at, at the end of my uh, medical school and then start, you know, did my specialized training there. And that also opened up the door to study mindfulness as a way to help people with addictions because there aren't, there weren't a lot of great treatments. There still aren't a lot of great treatments. So I started looking to see if, uh, I started looking to see if mindfulness could actually help people with, with addictions like alcohol and cocaine use disorder and you know, we found some of the early work that my lab did, you know, we'd studied alcohol and cocaine use disorder, found that it could be helpful there. I did a study with smoking where we got five times the quit rates of gold standard treatment. And that was pretty encouraging. So then started looking at the neurobiological mechanisms and even developing app-based mindfulness training for things like smoking and eating and even anxiety and
0: studying those. Yeah, that's interesting. So when I um the first session I had with uh, with a health psycho- a clinical health psychologist that I had, he brought up mindfulness and as a way of coping with, with pain. And I kind mm. of thought that this was, I don't know, I was incredibly sceptical and thought, you know, how is this going to help me with something that's such a physical problem and that, that's so all-encompassing? So what was what was your first kind of introduction to, to mindfulness and meditation? And what was your, did you have the, the initial skepticism that I did or, or were you a, a convert straight away?
1: <laughs> I think my nature is to be a skeptic. I think that's helpful in, in being a researcher itself. I started, I remember the summer before starting medical school, I was reading this book by John Kabat-Zinn called Full Catastrophe Living. And I started meditating my first day of medical school. I figured it was a new, new beginning for me, and I thought I would begin something new, such as learning to meditate. So, you know, it's kind of probably hard-headed when I do something, I would go for it. So I, you know, started meditating every day and just kind of stuck with it for a long, you know, a long time until I, you know, I was starting to see some benefits, but then. It took me probably about ten years to really see, you know, how powerful this could be, and also how different it was than the traditional approach that I've been taking to life, which was kind of willpower based. It's 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 the opposite of that.
0: Yeah, that kind of that discussion about willpower links quite well to to the approach that you take in in your new book. Where is it the three geared approach? I can't remember if I've,
1: yes uh, said yes. it
0: right, but it's about well, it brings in mindfulness for addiction. Do you want to just give a better explanation of bit than I've just done? <laughs> sure. So I, in my new book, Unwinding
1: Anxiety, I talk about how, first off, how anxiety can be a habit, which was not something that I learned in medical school or residency, but it was serendipitously kind of discovered from going back and looking at the literature when I was struggling helping my own patients with anxiety. You know, the, the current... Uh, gold standard treatment of medication for anxiety, the number needed to treat, meaning how many people you need to treat before one person shows a significant reduction in symptoms, is just over five. And so I I was getting about a 20% hit rate in terms of (laughs) helping my own patients. And at the time I was studying an app-based mindfulness training program we developed called Eat Right Now, and we had gotten a forty percent reduction in craving related eating there, so that was you know pretty striking. And somebody in that program said that they were they were their anxiety was triggering them to eat. So the way that this works is the first step is for somebody to map out their whatever the habit loop is. So for this person, anxiety was the trigger, eating was the behavior, and then the result was that they would. You know, they would distract themselves or get a little bit of a you know pleasure from eating or whatever, and so anybody can map out a habit loop. You know, it just takes a trigger, a behavior, and a reward. And in fact, uh, this is so helpful that I actually just put together a, my team put together a small uh, PDF that anybody can download for free. And I think the URL for that is mapmyhabit.com. So somebody can just go to there and download this habit mapper, and they can map out their habit loops. So that's the first step. The second step is just seeing how unrewarding whatever the old behavior is is. And that's important because the only way to change a behavior is to update the reward value in our brain. And the only way to update the reward value in our brain is to pay attention and see how rewarding it is right now, not just, you know, how rewarding it was when we laid it down years ago or or whatever. So here, awareness is really key. So, for example, I had a patient, I wrote about him in my Unwinding Anxiety book, uh, who, what? I sent him home actually with our, we had an Unwinding Anxiety app. I sent him home with that after our first visit to map out his habit loops around anxiety. And he came back two weeks later and told me he'd lost 14 pounds because he had been mapping out his habit loops around anxiety and anxiety was triggering him to eat. And he realized that the eating was actually making things worse. He felt bad because he knew he needed to lose weight and whatnot. So that's the second gear. The second step is just seeing how unrewarding an old behavior is. If something's rewarding, we'll keep doing it. If it's not rewarding, we'll become disenchanted and, and stop doing it. And then, of course, the third, I should say, of course, but the third step is, or the third gear is helping people find what I call the BBO, the bigger, better offer. So, if our brain is going to do behaviors based on how rewarding they are, we can help our brain find more rewarding behaviors. And the two categories that I talk about in the book are curiosity and kindness, because they both are intrinsic. They're something that we have available and they feel better than being anxious or caught up in a craving.
0: Yeah, that's, I think, picking up on the second step. It's, I don't know if it's directly relevant, but it seems like a lot of um, speaking with the very broad brush, a lot of mental health issues come down quite a bit to rumination. And that that was my issue with pain is that, you know, it's very hard not to ruminate on the pain. And actually you think when you are in that very anxious state that it, that it's reassuring to think about it and it it kind of becomes a, a crutch, which I suppose is the, is the, is the behavior element. And so the third step, how does, how does that help you to rebuild those, um, those connections, and I suppose, and what's the science behind that? The, so the third step is based on,
1: there's a part of our brain called the orbitofrontal cortex that stores and determines reward value. You can think of it as setting up a reward value hierarchy in our brain. So the way for that to work, that third step to find that bigger, better offer is to first actually starts with the second step, which is helping us see how unrewarding the old behavior is so that that drops down on the reward hierarchy. So for example, my patients who are trying to quit smoking, I have them pay attention as they smoke. Or my patients who are overeating, I have them really pay attention as they overeat so they can see exactly what they get from it. That updates the reward value. There's this whole mathematical modeling system called rescorla Wagner uh, reward value, uh, you know, models where you can actually calculate how rewarding something is, and then you can calculate the change in reward value over time. We can actually embed tools into our apps, so our smoking app, the Craven the Quit app, or the eating app, the Eat Right Now app. We can. We can embed tools so we can measure reward value change as people pay attention. And it turns out that that reward value changes pretty quickly. It takes 10 to 15 times of people really carefully paying attention to how rewarding a behavior is before that, you know, the old one like eating or smoking, that reward value drops significantly and it drops to the point where it's they shift from smoking or eating or overeating to not smoking and not overeating. So that's, that actually sets up the, the step for, you know, for third gear or the third step as that reward value drops, it opens up the space for something more rewarding to come in. And well, you tell
0: me what feels better being anxious <laughs> or being curious. Yeah. So I think that kind of relates that's where you bring in I suppose mindfulness in that you are if you're overeating it's you know potentially paying more attention to the food you're eating so that you don't because I think a lot of people just eat it and keep eating and eating and eating because it feels good but they actually don't taste it properly and they don't notice when they're full and I suppose for smoking it's more when you pay kind of mindful, mindful attention to how it tastes and how it smells is actually not, um, I think you're right that, well, it's not a particularly pleasant taste or smell.
1: <laughs> yeah. Cigarette like,
0: cigarettes taste like crap. I don't know anybody <laughs> that, that loves the taste of cigarette. Yeah. Um, and something that when I was reading the book and it's come up in your book and, and a few other books is about a region or network in the brain called default mode network and that it kind of you'll be able to provide a much better explanation of it but it that it it's the part of your brain that switches on when when we're not doing stuff when we're ruminating and um and it's got a lot to do with ruminative problems like depression and anxiety and things like that so can you explain a bit about what that network is and how what the tools are that we can potentially use to calm it down
1: Yes. So, the Development network is aptly named because it tends to be what we default to when we're not doing anything in particular. So, the, the average human mind is mind-wandering about 47% of waking life, according to one study. So, you can imagine what's our mind wandering to. It tends to wander to things that we've done in the past or to kind of projecting into the future. You know, what are we going to do later? in the day or the week or the year or whatever. So this network is pretty active and it's involved in self-reference. You know, what did what am I, what did I just do? What am I about to do? It gets activated in extreme versions of this where we ruminate, you know, in depression and somebody is constantly ruminating about the past. And it also gets activated when somebody is constantly worrying about the future. I'll also add that it gets activated when people are craving substances, whether it's cigarettes or cocaine or even behaviors like gambling. If somebody's addicted to gambling or even chocolate. One of my you know uh, did a study where she found that people, you know, when she fed people chocolate in a in a scanner, in a pet, they were activating. This default mode network, both at when they really wanted more chocolate and also after she had overfed them and they really wanted it to, you know, really wanted it to stop basically when it, the more uh, chocolate would make them feel, you know, sick basically. So you can think of this default mode network as being a pretty active network in terms of self reference. What we found serendipitously was that at mindfulness training and actually decreases activity of this default mode network. So we started by studying expert and novice meditators across a bunch of different types of meditation practices and found that experts decrease activity in this default mode network. They weren't as caught up in their experience. We went on to do some neurophenomenologic studies where we could link up their subjective experience with their brain activity using real-time neurofeedback. And found that it was that specific feeling of getting caught up or contracted that activated the default network, and that it was the letting go or expanding quality of experience that deactivated it. We also found we did a study with people who wanted to quit smoking. We found that uh, when you know, we we could scan their brains before and after they got you know, they were randomized to get mindfulness training or another you know app, the National Cancer Institute's app. For smoking, we found that we we could predict the reduction in cigarettes that they smoked a month later based on the amount that their default mode network quieted down after mindfulness training. But it didn't quiet down or show this uh, this correlation in the control group. So you know, just to bring all that together, sum it up. You know, it seems like this default mode network is pretty active. It's involved in self-reference, you know, when we're thinking about the past or the future. Mindfulness helps us stay in the present moment and not get caught up in thinking. Even in the present moment, we can get caught up in a craving, though. So mindfulness helps us basically not get caught up in any of these things. And we see a corresponding decrease in default mode network activity when somebody's being
0: mindful. That's fascinating. And Another area that I've read that potentially links in with the default mode network is, and actually, addiction as well, is the use of psilocybin and, and psychedelics. Is that an area of research that you have any particular knowledge in? And are the results of it which look seemingly promising? Is it is it more than high, high, hyper hyperbole, or is it is there actually some kind of um Good scientific backing to to those kind of experiments. Yes, I
1: think some careful scientists. So, for example, Robin Carhart-Harris and David Nutt at the University of College London have done some really eloquent studies looking at psilocybin. Uh, Roland Griffiths, um, sorry, Roland Griffin, Roland Griffiths at <laughs> uh, at um, Johns Hopkins in the US has also done some really good work. He and his colleagues there. So, I think there's some really solid science behind, you know, at least the initial stages of looking at the psychedelics, and there seems to be a, a similar deactivation of the default mode network when, when somebody is taking these, quote-unquote, mind-expanding drugs. One of the questions will be, you know, how can something like that get translated into clinical use, where, you know, there's, they're, right now, they're controlled substances, they you know, it's important. The set, setting is important for the use of these things. So they're not as accessible right now as, say, meditation. You know, somebody's learning to meditate. There are many, many ways that somebody can learn to meditate. And eventually, I could see the two being paired together where, you know, these mind-expanding drugs help people see, you know, what it's like to let go. To really let go, probably. <laughs> uh And the mindfulness training could train people to move in that direction without the need of uh, some type of mind-altering substance.
0: That's interesting. It's all about not becoming detached from your thoughts, I suppose, but removing the weight that you put behind those thoughts. Yes. I think of
1: it as changing our relationships to our thoughts and our emotions and body sensations rather than
0: being caught up in them or identified with them. Yeah. And another something that I picked up on that you wrote about later on in the book was how that at medical school you were taught to to i think the phrase you used was armor up that you know you had to be very resilient um you had to function on very little sleep my dad my dad's a doctor and he says you know the that period of training when you're a junior doctor there's very little time to actually look after yourself and you know, he ended up eating loads of crap, not exercising as much as he should have done, not, um, it was about building resilience rather than actually looking after yourself. And do you think within, your, within tra- people training to be doctors now, do you think, and well, I suppose caregivers as well, do you think that's changed? And do you think we're, partly because of COVID maybe, we're looking at how we can, look after people that look after us a bit better? Uh, I would like to think
1: that that's the case, but I've not really seen a lot of that yet. (laughs) Okay. So there's a recognition in the medical field of another epidemic, which is burnout. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that recognition is the first step. And I think people are trying to find solutions for how to help You know, healthcare providers become more resilient, and you know, I'm obviously biased. I think mindfulness training is a good way to go. There's a study published over ten years ago now uh, from the University of Rochester showing that mindfulness training could help increase resilience in physicians. So, you know, I think I think the the building blocks are there. I haven't seen it really be. Rolled out on a large scale, say in med, you know, some medical schools are starting to explore training resilience and whatnot. But I'm I'm not sure that there's a really clear grasp on exactly how to do that yet. You know, I certainly sure everybody has ideas on how to do that, uh, but I would say you know, really helping people understand how their own minds work is a good way to go. So, for example, we did a study with our unwinding anxiety app where. You know, one of the thoughts was that anxiety contributes to burnout in physicians, and so we did a study. And we found that, you know, there's a strong, a, a large correlation between anxiety and certain aspects of burnout. And when we give, when we gave anxious physicians our unwinding anxiety app, we got a significant reduction. We got a fifty-seven percent reduction in clinically validated anxiety scores, and we also found a 50% reduction in certain aspects of burnout, like callousness. We found a 20% reduction in emotional exhaustion, which is interesting because you can think of these two as representing individual factors, like callousness is more of an individual factor, whereas emotional exhaustion probably has a lot to do with institutional factors where physicians are being overworked and, you know, these electronic medical records can be problematic and things like that. So here, you know, it highlights how an app isn't going to fix somebody, but it can help people learn how their own minds work and they can work with their minds and, and reduce certain aspects of burnout, which might ideally help free them up and give them more energy to help change some
0: of the institutional factors that need to be overhauled. What kind of reaction does when you bring up mindfulness, does it get in in the wider medical community? I tend to talk about it when I'm giving talks or
1: lectures or grand rounds. I talk about the science and I actually focus on, you know, mindfulness can mean a bunch of different things to different people and it can seem kind of touchy feely Mm. or, you know, candles and incense and things (laughs) like that. So I actually just focus on the, Concrete elements, which are, you know, awareness and the attitude of being curious. And I'd highlight how, you know, awareness helps change reward value in people's brains and how you can change behavior and help people quit smoking and, you know, help anxiety. We have a study with our unwinding anxiety app where we did this. Uh, it was a randomized control trial with people with generalized anxiety disorder and we got a 67 percent reduction in these validated anxiety scales and we could also show mechanistically what was happening. So I tend to talk about it from a scientific perspective and also an outcomes perspective. And it's hard to argue with science. Well, some people argue with science, but in in the scientific field, you know, in medicine, people tend not to argue when you've done a careful experiment and a careful trial.
0: So the the scientific background and the research, uh, and I suppose the empirical evidence around mindfulness, is building. It is. It's still a relatively young field. When
1: I started doing research in the field, I remember t- somebody telling me that I was going to kill my career because this was, you know, this was not going anywhere <laughs> as a field. And then it really took off. You know, There was an exponential growth in the number of studies that were published. Now, there can be exponential growth when there aren't very many studies to start with, but that was the beginning and it's still a relatively young field. Yet, I think as people learn more about how it works and start putting forward theories that make sense and line up with the rest of science. I think that's going to help the field continue to move forward.
0: That's interesting. And the way we like to end things is, is asking you how you look after your own mental health.
1: (laughs) So how do I look after my own mental health? Well, (sighs) one thing, One thing that I learned to do was to see how unhelpful it is to armor up and to be the martyr. And also how important it is to really take care of myself. So sleeping enough, getting exercise every day. And all of that is really fostered by a foundation of really seeing how mindful I can be every moment. So not just formal meditation practice, you know, my wife and I uh, often meditate together in the mornings. But the just the moment-to-moment awareness and seeing, you know, w- how rewarding is it to be awake to this moment versus to be asleep, so that my brain can continue to train itself to see how rewarding it is uh, to be aware and how rewarding it is to be curious and how rewarding it is to be kind, and then it's simply a matter of just repeating that process over and over and over
0: kind of sets up a nice positive feedback loop it does um and where can we find more about you know your research for people who are more scientifically minded um, and and the book as well the i've
1: got a website just drjud.com drjud.com that lists a bunch of our research and links to the papers also the book and we have a free providers course actually for healthcare providers uh, where they can get in the US they can get uh, continuing medical education credit for it. All of that's on the website. Uh, also, if somebody wants to find all of the research papers, you know, a simple place to search is just to on Google Scholar. You know, if they just search my name there,
0: they'll you know we've got a bunch of published papers out uh, there. Brilliant, Jud. That's been super interesting, and and good luck with the book. It's out. I think it's out next week in the UK or the week after?
1: Yes, uh, I think around March 9th is the launch date. Brilliant. Thank you so much.
0: Thanks for having me. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a quick note to say that although the things I discussed with the guest we may find helpful, I'm not a trained medical professional. If you're struggling with your mental health, please contact your GP or speak to an organisation like Samaritan's on 116 123.